So these four weeks after Pentecost, we're focusing on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and we happen to come to the Sunday that the church calendar calls Trinity Sunday, and it reminds us that if Christian spirituality begins with God, and it does, that we come to a Trinitarian God, a God who is both one and three, and this Sunday invites us to think about and to celebrate that. So if you look with me at your reading in John 16, the kind of emotional context here is one of confused sadness. Jesus' first followers can't figure out what's going on with him. It doesn't match the kind of things that they had imagined would be true about him and true about the affect of his life. And so he says to them, I tell you the truth. That is to say, what I'm about to say is something you can come to rely on. He doesn't mean so much like what I'm about to say isn't false. He's saying, given your emotional confusion and sadness, here's something you can rely on. It's to your advantage that I go away. And this is one of those moments, those of you who know me know, I just love asking this question, is Jesus smart? Like, does that sentence correspond to any reality? Like, what does he mean? It's to your advantage that I go away. Like, I'm going to, basically he's sort of saying, I'm going to just simply enforce your sad confusion. I actually am going away. He doesn't say, now, 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 you know, don't worry, I'm not going to go away. He says, it's to your advantage that I go away. And then if you look at your text, you have this very important little three-letter logical connective. Four, for if I do not go away, the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. And then look at the next logical connective. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so this is what Jesus is aware of to be real and true. And in the same way that he came to rely on his father, who before he'd ever done anything in public, his father said of him, this is my son whom I love and with him I'm well pleased. Then Jesus goes through his life saying, I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what I hear him saying. Jesus is saying that that same sort of relational reliance in an invisible person, are you tracking with me here? They could see Jesus in his body. Jesus would talk about his father, but no one ever saw the father. And so there was this invisible reliance that Jesus would go out into desert places and into gardens and on mountaintops, but he would also be aware of this invisible presence in, in public. And Jesus said that that same dynamic is the dynamic that you're gonna have, but it won't happen until I go. Thus, it's to your advantage that I go away. For when the Spirit comes, look at your text, He will, and now we have a little job description. Now, there's little job descriptions of the Holy Spirit in other parts of Scripture, but this one says that He will convict the world. Now, the the word there for world in the Greek text is cosmos, and it means something like the world system that's aligned against God. And for those of us who care about our spiritual transformation into Christlikeness, that includes parts of our own little heart. It's just not that world out there who can't decide about bathrooms that's confused or malaligned. But 
aspects of our own heart that is malaligned with the will of the kingdom of the goodness of God. And so the Spirit, when He comes, He'll convict means to help us see with a motivation to change concerning three things, sin and righteousness and judgment. So let's look at these things quickly. Concerning sin, John, or Jesus says, because they do not believe in me. Now let's unpack those words a bit. So concerning sin, that's the Greek term hamartia. It means to miss the mark. And to have associated with that missing of God's mark or being malaligned with what he's doing, to have associated with it real guilt. That is to say, real violation. Um, I had a meeting here this week from people from all over the country, and, and the guy from Texas walked into the meeting a few minutes late uh, holding his cell phone, and he said, were you aware that um, you can't talk on your phone in California? I said, oh, yeah, we're all aware. I said, why, did you get a ticket? <laughs> he said, well, yeah, I got pulled over, but I showed him my Texas driver's license and rental car, and he, you know, he just gave me a warning. But there was a real violation there. And the sense of guilt that goes along with that. Meaning, yes, I really did this. And so when the Spirit comes, a part of what He does is helps us and the whole world know that. And then you have this word, because. And this is just to say that the coming of the Spirit and convicting people of how their life is missing the mark is an aspect of revelation. It's an aspect of the gospel. It's what we might call the welcome part of judgment. Because if you were a Jew hearing Jesus say this, or if you were an early Jew reading what John wrote about this, you would have an immediate imagination for Babylon, Syria, Egypt, Rome, and being a suppressed people wanting judgment to come. Have you ever wondered why in the Psalms and the prophets they, they actually invoke God's judgment, bring your judgment? Because the way Israel felt was the way somebody sitting on death row who's innocent felt. I mean, that's the emotional state. I don't mean to say that the parallel works, that Israel was innocent, but that same thing. What if you were in jail and innocent and you couldn't get anybody to hear your case? You couldn't get anybody to judge what's right or wrong here. And so it's a welcome thing for the Spirit to come. It's a part of the gospel that he will, he will be able to sort out, make separate or discreet things like good from bad. And Jesus says this is coming because the world, the, that which is aligned against me, obviously doesn't believe in me. And so believe here means like to yield, to trust yourself, to have confidence in Jesus and what he taught and what he was doing. And this, of course, against the backdrop of not just, you know, differences of opinions or, you know, what people might say today, kind of like I have this sort of casual, you know, inability to believe. That's not what's at stake here. What's at stake here is people who actually heard Jesus and rejected his message and his messenger. And when the Spirit comes, he will help people see that. And then next, look at your text concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you'll see me no longer. Righteousness, what the Holy Spirit does here, righteousness is dikaiosune, and it means something like that which is truly good. It's like the state of a woman or a man who she or he is as they ought to be. 
I know we don't like those words anymore, ought, um, and I'm sorry, but I can't think of a better one, because once you've got divine intention or divine and purpose, well, there's kind of an oughtness to the world. Are you tracking with me here? Like once God said, well, let there be a fish, and you like, you do what fish do, well, there's an inherent oughtness in that. And I'm sorry, and I, I know that human beings have done bad things to each other with oughtness, and that you know, armies of therapists are helping us to get over that. I, I, I get that part of it. But there's also just, there is an oughtness, you know what I mean? There's like a divine purpose to life. And, and so when someone is living aligned with that, that's called righteousness. And, it, and it, so, of course, it has all these undertones and overtones of integrity and virtue and purity of life and rightness and, like, correct thinking and feeling and acting. But I want you to picture it just as you will thrive as a woman. You will experience human flourishing to the degree that you align your life with God's purposes for you. Now, that meaning, as that meaning gets poured into oughtness, I'm good with it. I mean, as we abuse ourselves and each other with oughtness, of course, I'm against it. But there just is a kind of shouldness. There's, a, there's something that God has intended and purposed, and we're trying to learn to align ourselves with it. And part of what the Spirit does is help us see there, see that, and get there. And the, Jesus says, this is happening because I'm going to the Father. And the idea here is that his going to the Father, not being hemmed in by death, he's not in that tomb. He's going to the Father. This is the final vindication of all who Jesus was and all he taught. And then finally, Jesus says concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And this, again, is the goodness of judgment. It's someone saying, it's like Israel saying, finally, someone has heard our case and found in our favor. The Babylonians weren't right. The Syrians weren't right. The Egyptians weren't right. Caesar and Rome is not right. The world has one true creator and Lord, and he's finally going to speak his mind and, in a sense, put everybody else in their place. And then when this happens, the ruler of this world is judged. The world often thinks of, you know, justice being on its side. And we see that all over the place in our pluralistic, relativistic culture, right? If you just think of pop culture, pop music, you know, what you see on Saturday Night Live or Bill Maher or whatever, there's a sense in which the world often, if not usually, thinks it has rightness on its side. And what Jesus is talking about here is a moment is coming when the ruler of this world and all of its systems actually is going to be judged. And, and the big part of what this means, it's just that deception will be lifted and blindness will go away and people will have ears to hear and to see what's right. So this sort of judgment means that God is able to do this all the time, that God is able to separate the evidence out, look at something carefully, and then based on his absolute knowledge, make a decision about what's right. And that's finally going to come. And you know, I'm always prepared, you know, people often say to me that, you know, that I'm, I don't know, sort of peaceful or kind or something. And it's not that I'm such a great guy. It's that I have just a settled confidence in that. And I'm quite sure I'm wrong about stuff. 
quite sure. I mean, if I knew what it was, I'd fix it. But I'm quite sure I'm wrong about stuff. But I welcome God's judgment about that. Are you tracking with me? Because I want to be right. Now, I want you to catch this. Those for whom God's judgment is unpleasant is because they're settled in a not wanting God to be right. That's a problem then. But God's judgment is never a bad thing for those who have within them the desire for their lives to be increasingly aligned with God. And I just want to say for us living in 2016, this ought to be a great comfort for us who feel like we're living in a world gone mad. I mean, I had a little extra time this morning, so I took my car to the car wash, and I'm standing there looking at, you know, a TV monitor with CNN on it, and the car wash owner comes over and starts asking me what I think about Trump and Hillary, and, you know, talk, you know that was like a symbol for him that the world's gone mad, right? And what this is meant to mean is something like this, that in the age of the Spirit, the Spirit is something like what Nathan was to David. Remember that story when David had sinned and Nathan comes to him and uses this analogy of, you know, you're like this rich man who, who stole this poor person's sheep. And remember, David goes crazy, like, who would do such a thing? That's awful. You know, that person ought to be condemned. And remember what Nathan says to him? You're that man. And this is the way Israel would have pictured the coming of the Spirit in that sort of judgment, is that it shows what's right and what's real. And then, do you remember what we have of David's response in Psalm 51? So though David is deeply flawed, he is also deeply wanting fidelity to God and, and God's work in his life. And so we have, you know, Psalm 51, and in part him saying, God, against you and only you have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. David could see his wrongness and immediately respond. So then the question for like Christian spirituality is, would you like to see your wrongness? Or would you rather not? The invitation of, of just saying, yes, Lord, I, like, I know I'm wrong about stuff. And help me be right. So what we have in our Acts reading is just kind of seeing all this come to pass. That what Jesus said was true. He's raised from the dead. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. And then the Spirit is poured out, as he said. And as you read last week in uh, the earlier part of Acts 2, they see tongues of fire, they hear a sound of a mighty rushing wind, they hear everybody speaking, you know, foreigners speaking their own language. And then in our reading this morning, we have Peter trying to make sense of these events, trying to make meaning of them. And I want you to just notice that he tries to make meaning of them via the story of God. He connects it to history and to the future. And as he does so, they respond to him saying, what should we do? And Peter says, realign your life. He says, metanoete, that's the Greek term for repent. And it means you change your life. Seeing that this is finally the final inbreaking of God and inaugurating the final period of Israel's history and it's inaugurating and creating the church, it's that invitation of, would you like to see your life afresh? And would you like to realign it around the story of God? And then he says, be baptized. 
which essentially means publicly join and participate in the renewal of God's people. That this is like the closing scene of human history. Now, this scene's been going on for 2,000 years, but this is the closing scene of human history. And the invitation is, would you like to get in on it? And Peter says, if you do that, if you repent and you're baptized, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we didn't read this passage this morning, but I just want to remind you of it, because it's such a huge part, uh, huge turning point in the divine narrative. You all, I'm sure, can remember Luke 24, 49, that Jesus said to them, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but remember this, stay in the city until you've received power from on high. Why? I mean, Jesus had already won. The cross was done. Jesus had said from the cross, what? It is finished. So then what are you waiting on? What's so important about the sending and receiving of the Spirit that he actually says, don't go out and implement the victory of cross and resurrection. Don't go start doing that until you've received power from on high. So why wait for the Spirit to come? And I want to suggest to you this. Just sort of try this on for size. That the purposes of God in fully orbed discipleship The purposes of God in a really robust apprenticeship to Jesus requires a power that matches that intention. And again, not just on a global scale, and, you know, not on a U.S. political scale, but in my heart, that the kind of transformation that is envisioned and intentioned in Christian spirituality requires a power that can help that happen. And this is one reason every year at this time the church celebrates Trinity Sunday. It's to remind us that by God's plan and purpose, we live in the age of the Holy Spirit. And what we've read the last couple weeks in, in Acts 2 here, what we call this Pentecost moment, that Pentecost is the moment in which the personal presence of Jesus with the disciples is translated into the personal power of Jesus in the disciples. That's the big deal. And that is the big power of human transformation. Now, if we were to just stand back on this Trinity Sunday and try to celebrate the breadth of the Spirit's work, it's awesome. The Spirit in creation, in supervising history, in revealing God's truth, in drawing people to Jesus, in teaching the way of Jesus, in revealing the love of God to our hearts, Romans 5.5 5 says, of giving power and authority, of giving us equipping gifts so that we can serve God in the world. And then, of course, Galatians 5, transforming our heart via the fruit. And this is why I would want to say to you, to, to the degree that like, I'm your leader, I would just want to suggest that the third person of the Trinity is not and cannot be consigned to history as some would like us to believe. But nor is the Spirit the source of weirdness that some Charismatics and Pentecostals think. And we don't have an either-or here. There is a third way. It's a way of honesty and humility and desiring and trusting in what Jesus said. It is better for you that I go away. It's better for God's project on the earth. It's better for humanity if I would go away 
and that each Christian would have an ongoing conversational relationship with the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. That is the vision of God. That vision, as I often playfully say, is not owned by the Assemblies of God. It's not owned by the Foursquare Church. It's not owned by the Church of God in Christ. It is not a denominational issue. To reduce the third person of the Trinity to a religious consumer choice is absurd. We're talking about God Almighty here. The Father who you hope to welcome you, the Jesus who you assume is your mediator to get there, they said the Holy Spirit is really crucial. And so I just kind of without any shyness commend to you, find an honest, ongoing, conversational relationship with God the Holy Spirit. The Jesus who you say you love and you're following is the one who commended it to you. So the notion here is that being filled with the Spirit is not an idea, it's not a proposition or a bit of doctrine, it's something that Jesus thought that we would know by experience. Which then for me raises the question, okay, how do we get in on this? How do we participate? And again, we didn't read this passage this morning, but I, you know, I always think of John 20, you know that story where it says that Jesus um, takes this really deep breath. The Greek construction here is beautiful. Jesus breathes in deeply, and then he exhales, and the idea here is, is his exhalation inflates his first followers. So think of like a balloon. So breathe, Jesus breathes in deeply. He exhales upon them, inflating their lives with the Holy Spirit. And he says to them, as he's exhaling, receive the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, could you please be open Nor does he commend, well, I understand you've been hurt in the past, and so I commend your honest cynicism. No, what he's actually saying here is not just an openness, but a confident welcome that would embrace the life and leadership of the Spirit. So all of you who love Eucharist, we're almost there. All of you who love Eucharist, you can go home and get out your Greek text if you're so inclined and find that the words around the table are mimicked here. When Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, this is the same construction. It's translated receive here, but it's take. And you do a little work with it in the Greek dictionaries and you find out that this means to receive, to actively take hold of it. And so in the same way that we come week after week in faith, our hands extended showing an active reception, a desire, a wanting. The view of the scripture here is one, one Greek dictionary puts it this way, to receive or to take means to accept with initiative. And that the word actually emphasizes the will or the assertiveness of the receiver. Take, eat. Take, be inflated with the Spirit. And I just would close with this. This, I think, explains Luke 11. You know that famous parable of, you know, ask and seek and knock. And then Jesus applies it in a very surprising way. When he says, 
look, here's why I want you to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. For if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? To those whom when they hear Jesus from the Father exhaling the Spirit over the rest of human history, exhaling the Spirit into the church, say, yeah, take, eat. Let, it, let your exhalation inhale my life. So as we come to our quiet moment now, I know lots of you sitting here, you may or may not have clarity about when the Spirit's supposed to come. Like maybe you have an evangelical background that says, well, the Spirit comes at conversion. Maybe you have a Pentecostal background that says, no, this is a second work of grace. And so you may or may not have clarity about that. And you may or may not have clarity about what the initial evidence is. Maybe you come from a Pentecostal background that would say it's tongues. Maybe you come from a third wave background that would say, well, it could be any of the gifts. You may not have clarity about that. But as you close your eyes now, bow your heads, and come to a quiet moment, I want to suggest this, that we all should have clarity about this. Is my life inspired by the Spirit, as promised by the Father and taught by Jesus? So no matter, else, no matter what else you might think about, the doctrine of the Trinity or pneumatology, the doctrine of the Spirit, whatever confusion may exist in your mind or heart, this one thing should be clear. Is my life inspired by the Spirit, as promised by the Father, and taught by Jesus.